Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. Joining you as always, my name is Ryan McGee. I am located in Richmond, Virginia. And with me in Southampton, England is our own Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm good. Yeah, I had a good weekend of curling. Uh, I got a, I got there a bit late for my uh, Saturday league game, my first one. I got there on the fourth end. Through two stones, we scored a seven under. <laughs> we walked off the ice. So you drove. <laughs> so you drove four hours to throw two stones. Well, the Saturday league at, at Fenton's has like back to back games. So we play like ten to twelve, and then one uh, one thirtieth to about four. So I did get the second game in, but yeah, I, I drove. <laughs> I was in a rush to get there. And I guess I mean maybe maybe I was the difference maker. I like to think so. But they they were already leading when I got there. They're already up like four one. So, but you were you were the reason they got they cracked the seven, right? Oh, oh, totally. I, actually, the joke was Greg said, "Well, it was your stone that was out of play." <laughs> <laughs> We've seen all these eight ender photos on Instagram and Twitter. That would have been great if you had shown up just in time for the for the eight ender. Scoring the eight under, yeah. So, yeah, no, it was good. It was a good, uh, good, fun weekend. So, how many eight enders have you scored in your career? Uh, none. Um, oh wow! I've scored. I, I've lost count. I, I mean, I've scored a seven enders aren't that common either. I, I'm trying to even think the last time I scored a seven under, but uh, I've definitely scored a few seven enders, but never an eight. Never an eight. No. And to be fair, the, this one, the, they made one takeout, so that's why we didn't get the eight. So the eight was never really, really on. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, we are in the middle of championship season, finally, in curling. We had you know, the fall season where, as you said, it's kind of all about the gold. And then the spring season, once we get past the holidays, it's all about the glory. And we have a bunch of teams going for glory this upcoming week. You know, we're going to talk about four different national championships that are going to be going on around the world here coming up. Uh, we also saw, we've also seen the Scotties field be determined through all of the provincial playdowns. We've got about, you know, a little under half of the Briar field uh, left to fill. We've got all kinds of curling on television as well. We saw the Curling World Cup this weekend. We saw, you know, a little bit more of that gold that you were talking about. They were, they had the they had the skins game over the weekend, which, you know, it was the skins game. It wasn't it wasn't anything it wasn't anything special. It was about the same as as it always is. It's it's TSN trying to sneak in on on play down season, since it seems like all the play downs are on Sportsnet, this is TSN's chance to to try and steal some steal some viewership in the middle of that. But you know, it was fine, and Ontario was interesting. We got to see Scott McDonald pull kind of an upset. I think I think him winning wasn't necessarily as much of an upset as the fact that he ran the table in Ontario. Yeah, no, I, I watched the final, and I've also watched the end of the semi and. Uh... 
in the final last night. And uh, yeah, they basically missed nothing. <laughs> so they, they were definitely on fire. There's no way they were losing that game ever. Uh, I mean, I guess a little bit of a surprise, but they were clearly, you know, one of, they were right there with Howard and Epping all season on the cash cash tour spiel circuit. And I, I hadn't seen them play before, but they've got all the tools. So it's pretty cool to see a team work its way up the ladder like they have. Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I always like it when a, a, a new team punches through. Um, it's, you know, it's n- nothing against Epping or Howard. I mean, but we've seen Howard <laughs> at the Briar a lot. So, <laughs> you know, we can, we can go a year without him. And, uh, you know, Epping was there last year. And I think he still has an outside chance to make the wild card game, like, depending on the seeding. As long as either Cooey or Botcher wins in Alberta, I believe Epping will be in the wild card game. Yeah. And so I kind of like that feature too now. Like we've, they've got a good one on the women's side too. So that guarantees a really nice game to start off the week. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a nice new feature. So it's not, season's not necessarily over for Epping, but kind of into a do or die game to get into the briar proper. Uh, real quick, before we get into all these national championships that are going on, uh, since you're from Quebec, if McDonald were to win the briar, would that be a bigger upset than the year that Menard won? No, I don't, th- I, I think, well, no, I think a couple of things like, like Ontario winning the briar isn't, surprising right like basically any team that comes from ontario manitoba or alberta is going to have a shot it's it's rare that one of those teams even kind of finishes misses the playoffs let alone finishes below 500 so they'll definitely have a shot um and i think i think the minority was both the fact that it was a quebec team that won and the fact that uh it was against howard and they they have they basically came out on fire in the first inning. Howard was a little bit off, and they I can't remember if they scored five or six, but um, they were just on that day. I think it was like upset from start to finish. Surprising they were in the final. I'm surprising they beat Howard. All right. Well, we will move on to these national championships that are coming up here in the next week, and we'll start out here where I am in the United States, where. The USA Men's and Women's Nationals are going to begin February 9th, and they will run through February 16th in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The winner may or may not be heading to the, the Worlds uh, later this year, as you know, if you're not from the U.S. or you're not familiar with how this works, the U.S. now has a high-performance program, and they now have certain restrictions, uh, certain things that you have to qualify for in order to be eligible to be the team that gets sent to the world championships. And we've had a couple of instances where the team that won the U.S. Nationals did not represent the U.S. at Worlds. So whether or not that happens this year, I'm not sure. I I believe... I believe I saw where the requirements to be eligible to be the world team starts a little low and then moves up as the years progress in the quad, which I kind of agree with. Although with this year, since you're not earning points for for the Olympics, the only change I think I would make is I would make it to where 
in the Olympic year and in the year right after the Olympics, anyone can be eligible to, to go to the worlds. I think that's the only change I would make, but I do agree that in order for curling to grow in the U S that the USA has to be in the Olympics. So we do need to send our best to the world championships, regardless of the kind of week that they have at us nationals. So to that extent, I'm okay with the rules that have been in place here for what has it been? It's been a while now, right? It's, is, it, is this the second quad or is this the third quad that this has been in effect for? <laughs> uh, I was I was on the board when it dropped. I was actually just rolling off the board when it dropped. So they, they brought in the rules um, summer of 2013 because that's when I was leaving the U.S. So yeah. Uh, and you know, I think part of the thinking, um, at the time was that a lot and definitely the time this was true is a lot of the U S teams weren't going out and playing on tour all that hard. Like, especially when I was in St. Paul, maybe, maybe a few teams would go like rich, rich was always one of the exceptions. Like he would definitely go up to Winnipeg and play cash deals there and, and try to play high, high end competition. But there was a lot of other, you know, good teams that would basically just do the Wisconsin, Minnesota circuit. And it was kind of a bit of a closed shop. And I think part of the thinking that Derek Brown had was we've really got to nudge these teams to get out and start playing more on tour, earning more order of merit points. And uh, it has had that effect, I'd say, right? Mm -hmm. That um, teams do now realize they have to do it. It's still controversial, I think, but it seems that they've eased it up a little bit. And uh, I think the first, first couple of years, it was a little bit too tight. And you had situations where, you know, teams had had good seasons, perhaps not great seasons and weren't awarded the, the right to go to the world. So I think now if you're, so it's top 100 this year. So I'd be very surprised if a, if a non top 100 team uh, won it <laughs> this year. Yeah. That, that to me would be a big upset. Part of it is you can be top 100 in order of merit or 40 year-to-date points. That gets you eligible to be the world team this year, and I believe that will go up in future years. But part of that is you can only count a certain number of U.S. spiels in your points. So to the point you made, it does encourage teams to go out and face tougher competition away from the Wisconsin and Minnesota cash spiels, like you were saying. Yeah, and I think I think that's good. I think, um, like, I I, I I do worry. I haven't not, I haven't really been in the U.S. in the last five six years. So there is the worry that if all the top teams are out playing in Canada all the time, how does that affect the U.S. events? Is that water down the field, or or do some bond spiels fold? So that's always kind of a bit of an issue. But I do think that if the top teams are going out and playing the best teams in the world and then they come back and playing events in the U S I think most of them at least support their local events, then um, that can only be a good thing too, right? That they're coming back stronger and then playing against the local teams and then they have to up their game too. So I do think that's, that's part of why, you know, U S curlings, I think really raised the bar over the last, last, last five, six years. And that uh, begins with John Schuster, who is the defending Olympic gold medal champion. And because he was at the, well, 
because he won gold at the Olympics, he did not participate in this event last season, which was won by Rich Ruinen. So I think Schuster comes in as the favorite, but your defending champion is Team Ruinen with Rich Ruinen skipping and Greg Persinger throwing fourth. Last year, they brought Rich in late in the season and they wound up winning nationals. This year, even though on Twitter, they're still a Team Persinger, the U.S. refers to them as Team Ruinen. So that's kind of weird, but you have Greg Persinger throwing fourth, Rich throwing third and skipping. You know, this team has world's experience. This year, they're a high performance team. They've gone out on tour. They've been able to play in some of the GSOC events. Behind them, you have kind of, I guess, for lack of a better term, the number three high performance team, which is which they refer to themselves as Young Bucks USA, yeah. which is Team Finner with... Mark Finner skipping out of second position and then Corey Dropkin throwing fourth stones. That's another team that they've been able to get into some high quality events, including GSOC events. Uh, They haven't fared great there. They did do very well at the tier two tour challenge event. Uh, They also were just in Jönköping, Sweden at the curling world cup where they did fine. Uh, They also, they had one game where they had, Nicholas Adin really on the ropes and they kind of kind of let him off the hook and Adin beat them in the the draw to the button shootout that they have there at the curling world cup to decide ties. Mm. Those are probably your three favorites and those are your three high performance uh, teams. Um, next up, at least in terms of order of merit is Scott Dunham and he's not a newcomer to this event. He did participate last year and went one and eight. Uh, he was the top non-high performance team. He was also being in the top four. He qualified for this event directly and did not have to go to the challenge round. He is in the top 100. So I believe he is um, eligible to be the world team if they were to somehow win this event. And then right below him is a team that has won this event in the past. They haven't been on tour a whole lot, but you can never count out a guy like Todd Burr in this event, right? It seems like he just knows how to make the playoffs at the U S nationals, regardless of what he's done coming into it. Yeah. I think, I think he's a dangerous team, right? So, uh, yeah, he's, he's not, uh, he's, he's probably made the choice not to tour very heavily. They wouldn't, if they were one, they actually wouldn't then qualify for worlds, would they? They're just outside of it, I believe. And do, do the points you earn at nationals count or not? No, I believe the cutoff. The cutoff was January thirty first. Okay, so they're just out. So they're just outside of it. Yeah. So I mean, that's kind of a bit unfortunate for them, but um, they, yeah, he's dangerous, right? So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I think I would not discount Team Burr either. Um, yep. uh, they were they were third last year, and this is he's got some younger guys playing with him, including Hunter Clausen, who I believe last year. Uh, I believe during last year's season, Hunter Clausen was living in Todd Burr's basement or something like that while he was playing for him. Uh, they, they, they wound up finishing third last season. Uh, Todd Burr won in 2007 where he actually went on to win world bronze. So this is a team that you can't count out, especially with, with Burr uh, throwing last rocks. Below them on the order of merit, and we're kind of going in order of uh, the order of merit here, we have a junior high performance team led by Chase Sinet. They've done well 
at junior spiels, they haven't quite done as well against senior competition. They they were an A qualifier at the Challenger event, so they went undefeated there. They won the Stu Sells Junior uh, tournament in Ontario. They won the Kitchener Water. I'm sorry, they finished second at the Kitchener Waterloo Junior tournament. So they've they've gone to Ontario and done well against Canadian junior teams as well. However, at U.S. at the U.S. Junior Nationals, they probably didn't fare as well as they hoped. They went four and three and just missed the playoffs against men's teams. Their best win is probably against Jed Brundage, who is another team in this event. Um, but you know, they've got, they've got high performance backing. They've been able to get out on tour. Who knows what they'll do in this field. I'm a little, I'll be honest. I'm a little skeptical of the junior teams. I think it's good for them to play in the events and get the competition. And I'm sure they'll, they'll pull off an upset here or there, but, uh, I think over the course of the week, um, just the, I mean, part of it's just with juniors versus adult curling. There's the psychology factor, right? That, uh, that someone like Todd Burr, he's, he's got to throw to the button for the win. He's not going to be phased. Whereas often with juniors, uh, the kind of pressure shots do get to them a little bit. And then the tactical kind of know-how, um, just kind of knowing the angles, uh, the risk reward calculation, those things all play in. And I think in events like this, um, you know, certainly if you told me that Senate upsets, you know, Burr or upsets Ruin in a game, it would be an upset. I wouldn't be surprised by it. But if you tell me they're going to, you know, run the table, uh, I would I would be very surprised by that. So I do think the juniors are kind of there for seasoning. They may win a, a couple of games, you know, surprising games, but I don't see them kind of making deep playoff runs. Moving on in the field, uh, Steve Berklid's team, they're from Washington State. I believe they curl out of the Seattle Curling Club. That's a team that's gone into Canada a few times. They did not qualify, but they did go to Spiels in Abbotsford and Red Deer. So I wonder, I bet Steve Berklid has stories about that infamous Red Deer Spiel from this year. Oh, so he was there. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yes, he was. <laughs> Uh, they made the semifinals at St. Paul, uh, and his best win on tour was probably against Tide Burr there at St. Paul. Just below him, uh, Jed Brundage's team. This team did go to three spiels in Canada. They didn't earn a ton of points, but they've, you know, they've, they're a well-seasoned team. They've got two members of their team, uh, working in Brown who played at the world mixed this year. Uh, they beat John Schuster at the Curl Masabi tournament. So, and last year here at Nationals, they went to a tiebreaker. So, even though they're pretty low on the totem pole, if you're strictly looking at order of merit points, I think just as you said with Todd Burr, I think this is one of those really dangerous teams that is going to be a tough out for whoever has to play them. Yeah, I, I'd say you got to be careful with the order of merit points thing because. At a certain level, there's there's players like Burr who just aren't on tour, but are still good curlers, right? That uh, for whatever reason, they're not going out and playing eight spiels in the run up to nationals. Just maybe their schedules don't allow it, or that's not where their goals are at the moment. So um, going just off order of merit, uh, I think can can uh, be deceiving at times, especially if not everyone in the field is, is kind of doing the same thing. So yeah, I'd say that they're a team that has a chance to be a tough out for sure. 
And that's especially true. The order of merit thing is especially true in the first year of a quad, right? You will have teams who are going to kind of cool it and play lighter schedules the first year. You even see that with the top teams in Canada. Even a lot of those teams are cutting back on their tournaments just because it's the first year of a quad. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. I also think I, I wouldn't assume that every team is putting together the same strategy, right? So uh, like a Todd Burr, I think he's kind of sticking close to home, knows he's a, knows he's a good curl and has confidence in his team, will play in the events he wants to play in and is not chasing points. Um, you know, and if you're a points chaser, you, you might – then like you'd probably want to avoid all the American tournaments and try to get into the most difficult fields you can in Canada, right? And that's that's a strategy too. Mm-hmm. You saw that with uh, the Dunham team. They went up to Ontario a few times. Uh, they even beat Glenn Howard in the Oakville Spiel early in the early in the season. But they definitely went after. They definitely went into Ontario and went after those points, just like some other teams that we'll talk about uh, later here in later here in this preview. Yeah, and it, it's it depends what the team's trying to do, right? Like, and we'll we'll look at a few others. There's a couple of Scottish examples too, where you know the the order of merit standing of one of the Scottish teams we'll talk about in a bit does not uh, kind of belies the talent on that team. So, uh, order of merit's not everything, and just because a team's not you know out there spieling all the time, uh, doesn't mean they're still not good curlers. The last two teams here in the field, you have. Team the newly minted Team Strauss. They were also a Team McDonald when they were playing for most of the season, and they switched their skip from Andrew McDonald to Sam Strauss right before Junior Nationals, where they had a pretty good run, uh, went to the semifinals, um, and their only loss in the round robin was to the Stapera team, which wound up winning. And we'll see that team. The reason that team is not going to be at this tournament is because they won junior nationals are going to be busy at junior worlds unable to participate and team stapera qualifying for junior worlds means that Brandon Corbett gets to fill in uh, the last spot here in this field, which is good for him. They had to play three handed at the challenger round. They slipped down to the C bracket. They won five games in a row playing three handed and then lost the C qualifier uh, the last game. So it's, I think it's great that they get to play in this tournament and it's a team that we've seen at us nationals a few times. Yeah, no, it's good for them. Good that they, they kind of were able to, to squeak in and maybe, uh, maybe they can kind of get in a role. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think there's any team on here that I think is destined to go over, right? Every single one of these teams is kind of capable of of upsetting someone. And I think once you get below, really, once you get below the top three, any of the games is a coin flip. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I'd agree with that. There's going to be coin flip games. I think like, like normally with these things, it's really hard in a round Robin format to go undefeated. Um, Normally the benchmark for playoffs is about 75%. So you can probably you can definitely get away to dropping two. If you're dropping three, you're kind of you probably can still squeak in there. But if you you drop four, you're you're probably not even making a tiebreaker. So so the margins are pretty tight for a lot of these teams too, right? That I'd be surprised if there's a team that runs the field. I guess maybe Schuster Ruinen could possibly do that. But um, you know, after you drop that first game, 
you don't have much breathing room after that. Five and I, I bet there's going to be a lot of teams at five and four. Yeah, I'm sorry, with a ten ten team round. So ten team round is three teams in the playoffs or at four on the men's side. Four, so it'll be a four. Yeah, they're doing page playoff four with four teams. So I bet you've got so three losses. Yeah, so three losses definitely gets you in in that format. And yeah, like you said, four you're four you're playing with fire. You probably need a bit of help, but uh, in a close event, anything can happen. And so you probably got a shot at a tiebreaker. Yeah. Do you agree? John Schuster is the favorite. Yeah, I'd say. I so I, I'd say yes, but I think Ruinen is right there. Like I'd kind of go Schuster one A, Ruinen one B. Like you know, if you told me at the end of the week that Ruinen won, I wouldn't be surprised. He's they've posted just as good a set of results on tour this year. So I think. I think Ruinen kind of wants to win with Schuster in the field and Schuster wants his, his crown back. So I think that's the, that's the showdown that everyone's looking for, but there's definitely some teams that could sneak in there and play for and play spoiler. And it's been kind of an up and down year for the Schuster team with Chris Plies coming in to play third. Um, you know, they've had some successes at the slams. They have also had a, a, a spiel where I think they went over. Uh, even though that was not that was not a GSOC event, I think that was one of the events here in the states that they wound up going over. But having some having some new blood on the team can be good too, right? Because they they said coming in that they still have goals. They want to win a Slam. They want to win a Worlds. They want to finish. Um, I believe they said top five at the end of the season. You know, they still have goals, even though they're Olympic gold medalists. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Actually, I'm just like checking their curling zone stats, and their win percentage this year is actually higher than last year. So in 2018, their record—I'm not sure if this is—I'm not sure if, they, if this has to be. They have, there's no way they could have played 60 games since uh, since January. So I got, it's looking like this season's record is 38 and 19, and last year was 39 and 36. So. This year, they're winning two-thirds of their games. Last year, they only won 52%. Now, maybe they were playing tougher teams last year, but just going through some of their events, it's like, yeah, no, they've beaten good teams, right? Like their win over Epping in the Curling World Cup was a statement win. Um, they beat Gushu, it looks like. Yep, <laughs> so, they did have, yeah, they had a win over Gushu. They had a win over Gushu. They just lost to Carruthers 5-4. Like, like they're there with the slam teams kind of, you know, pretty much shot for shot these days, which I'd say even two years ago, you couldn't say that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think to me, the big question for them this year is A, all the other stuff that being a gold medalist entails, like I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff and you kind of covered a lot in our Twitter feed, but there's there's probably also a lot of ways in which that can just be draining too, right? The, the extra media appearances, the extra attention. So my, my big question for them heading into this year was A, would all the other stuff that goes with now having gone from being just a team on tour to being the face of curling in America and perhaps in the world – does that weigh on them heavily in a certain sense? Does that affect their play at all? And then, yeah, what what else is there to win after a gold medal? So, yeah, I think they've said they want to win a world championship and they want to win a slam. So that I think they st- I think they do want to see if they can become, you know, obviously winning the gold medal gives you a claim to be the best team in the world, but if they can kind of really turn into one of those super teams in the top five kind of thing, right? The, to be, you know, consistently at the level of a Kui or a Gushu or an Adin. 
And like you said, even though he probably would never say it publicly, I bet there's a little little bit of extra motivation for Team Ruinen with Schuster being in the field this year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not to take away their win last year, right? They they did, you know, they won against what was still a very deep field, and they did really well at Worlds. So it's not like they, there's any kind of asterisks, I'd say, next to their next to their title last year. But obviously, Schuster's oh, yeah. the one guy who could say, "Hang on a second, I wasn't there last year. I was I was doing some other things." So uh, I think Ruinen Ruinen Rink definitely wants to. <laughs> to win this, to put that kind of debate to bed. And I, I, you know what? It's the kind of case that on any Sunday could go either way. So uh, I expect them both to definitely be their end of the week. So be curious to see how that all shakes out. Uh, one other note on the men's side before we go to the women's side of U.S. Nationals. Uh, Jared Allen is going to be the alternate for Team Ruinen, and Michael Roos is going to be the alternate for Team Burr. And those are two new coming uh those are two of the all-pro curling team, new curlers who are uh, former NFL players who have just started this sport. So they'll get a chance to see what it's like to be at a uh, at a U.S. Nationals level event up close and personal as alternates for those two teams. Yeah, and that's kind of a cool, nice touch. Um, brings a bit more publicity to the game too, and it's a good way for for Jared Allen to kind of see up close what like a championship level team has to do uh, to win a national championship. So, you know, I think good experience for both sides. On the women's side of this event, to me, this is where things get really interesting because I think this year more so, much more so than previous years, it's kind of wide open. So you have, I believe, five teams that are five. I believe you have five of the eight teams that are eligible to represent the U.S. at the World Championships. Uh, At the top of that list are Teams Roth and Sinclair. Team Roth went to the Olympics last year. Team Sinclair went to Worlds last year uh, after winning U.S. Nationals. Um, the other high performance team is team Corey Christensen, who added, uh, Vicky Persinger at third over from team Sinclair starting this year. So I think you have three teams that maybe have kind of separated themselves from the rest of the field, but not so much so that no one else has a chance in this event. So team Roth and team Sinclair are both kind of breaking in new teams with new members added. Plus, both of them are without usual members of their team. Team Roth, uh, no Eileen Geving. And Team Sinclair, uh, no Alex Carlson, uh, both of whom are away from the teams uh, this year, starting families. Um, So those two, while you would say they're their prohibitive favorites, they haven't been so good on tour that you would say no one else has a chance. And right below those two teams, you have Team Christensen, who's kind of come on this year. Team Seneker, that went and challenged itself in Ontario, earned enough points to qualify directly into this event uh, without having to go to the challenger round, and earned enough points that if they happen to win this event, they get to go to Worlds. Then uh, right below them, you have uh, Team Duberstein, who's one of the high-performance junior programs. They've done pretty good. They've gotten the chance to to play in some pretty high level events and play some high level competition to see, you know, what it's like to go through a week of playing uh, adult teams 
in this type of format. So I think you have five solid teams that maybe have a chance at winning. And then just below them, Team Rhyme and Team Podal, who are veterans in this event, who have, uh, you know, Team Rhyme was fourth last year. Team Podal was here last year. Uh, and then rounding out the field, another junior team, uh, Ariel Traxler's team from Alaska. So for the first time in, in the while, we have kind of a deep women's field at U.S. Nationals, right? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a bit more depth. I do think... I mean, I'd, I'd probably go in tranches. So I'd kind of say, well, I, I would actually say, again, Roth and Sinclair are kind of 1A, 1B. Um, in a certain sense, I think Roth has been a bit hotter since, at the start of this season, but you can't discount Jamie Sinclair's kind of play at the end of last season, right? With you know winning a slam and posting decent results at Worlds and winning U.S. Nationals last year. So I'd say they're kind of 1A, 1B. Christensen kind of right there behind them. And then I think Seneca and Duberstein are kind of the next tier down, both kind of certainly in the hunt for a playoff spot. Uh, but I think there's still a bit of separation between the high performance programs and those teams. Uh, but yeah, I think the field's quite deep in kind of previous years. You may not have been able to say that about the women's field at us nationals, that there was a gap between the bottom of the field, uh, and the top. But, um, and it's good to see. And it's good to see a lot more teams going out on tour on the women's side too. I think the Seneca team's a dangerous team. And if you want to learn more about them, uh, go to li- go and listen to our interview with Stephanie Seneca from earlier this season. Uh, they went out and challenged themselves in Ontario uh, and actually qualified for qualified in three of those events, made semifinals at one of them. Um, my only, I guess, qualm is they haven't played in an event since December 2nd. Is that going to be, you know, what, what effect is that going to have on that team? I mean, I'm not quite sure what else they're doing. Like, like talking to Stephanie during the interview, it's like they, they do all the right things. And I mean, she's driving regularly to get ice time. So I, I doubt it's not as if they haven't played, had that kind of ice access since then. I don't think it matters that much. Like they may also just prepare by playing a couple of kind of practice games before. And I, I don't know what their preparation is outside of kind of playing the high performance games. I know a couple of, them, a couple of them won the, uh, the great lakes mixed event. So they've also qualified for nationals for mixed. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw that. So, so they're, they're still playing, right? It's not as if they're, they haven't done anything since then. I, th- I think that can be a little bit overrated as like a problem in terms of kind of playing all the time. I, th- I do believe there's something to be said for being strategic about putting in breaks and not um, not wearing yourself down leading into your championship event. Uh, so as long as they're getting ice time and as long as they're playing, I think it should be fine. Um you know, it's not, it's, I, I don't think it's that much of a factor to be honest. And then if we're looking at Roth and Sinclair as one A and one B, I think the interesting things there are, I think Roth has done better in the slam events. You know, she beat Jennifer Jones at the masters. Uh, she made the semifinals at the tour challenge. She made the semifinals at the Canadian open. She's beaten Jones, Anderson, Scheidegger, Flaxy, Tiranzoni. You know, she has this long list of, of big wins against top name teams, but she's 0-2 against Sinclair this year. And I believe in the last one, Sinclair beat her nine to nothing. What kind of, you know, what kind of mental advantage does that give Sinclair knowing that she's kind of had Ross number lately? Mm-hmm. 
that could be a trap <laughs> too. I always remember. I always remember I, we played uh, uh, Guy Hemmings, Pierre Charette, and Espiel <laughs> back in like uh, back in the day, back in Montreal, and they just clobbered us, clobbered us in the round robin. It's like, oh, we were off the ice in four ends. And uh, we ended up kind of making our way back and played them in the final, and it went to an extra end. I remember Pierre said, like he said to us after the game, he's like, I hate playing a team that I've just destroyed because I know they're going to come back mad, <laughs> right? And so uh, I think that, I think that if you've beaten a team by a big margin, you can kind of ease off the gas a bit. And uh, if you got blown out last time, if you're any kind of competitor, I'm sure, and Nina definitely is a competitor, uh, they're going to come back mad. So mm-hmm. I, I don't put too much stock in that. I mean, sometimes it's interesting if teams have played each other like a lot. Like if you you know go to the curling zone and you see they've played each other 10 times and like the record's, you know, nine to one uh, and the teams are kind of roughly equal in order of merit. Maybe that, that means someone's in someone's head or a team's got some kind of advantage, but um yeah, I mean, I think, again, I I would not be surprised if either of those teams won. I think it'll just be a matter of who's hotter on uh, on Sunday. I will say this, just because they're both working in new lineups, they haven't been, you know, they've, they've had, the, both teams have had big wins, but maybe haven't been as consistent as they were last year. I think if you're ever going to have a situation where a nine non high performance team or a, an unexpected team breaks through and wins and represents the U S at worlds. I think it would be this year. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there's a good chance. I think it's early in the quad um, new teams are being formed. So certainly some of the other teams we kind of categorize as dangerous, like the Duberstein and the Seneca team, like if they make playoffs and they get hot, that's like that's kind of their path, right? Is is goal one is make playoffs, and then just get in a roll uh, and kind of win out. So um, yeah, I, I, it's certainly they certainly have a chance. I you know um, I think Roth and Sinclair still obviously have the big advantage, and Christensen's kind of just in there as as just right behind them. So like another another possibility for an upset there for sure. All right, so as we said, U.S. Nationals get underway February 9th. If you want to watch any of that curling from Kalamazoo, the fine people over at 12th End Sports Network are going to be covering every draw from Kalamazoo. I strongly encourage you to go to usacurl.org and watch those games. Uh, TESN does a great job. If you're listening to us and you're in Canada and you're used to watching provincials um, from Saskatchewan or from Ontario and watching those, uh, you know, those live streamed feeds, what you'll see from TESN is either on par or ahead of, of what you'll see from, from those, from those live stream feeds. Definitely worth it to, to log in and, and watch, watch those games. Uh, Some of the better games, um, that I know I'll be making sure that I watch throughout the week that are currently scheduled to be broadcast by TESN at 4 p.m. Eastern on February 10th. You've got Ruin and Fenner at 8 p.m. that night on the 10th. You have Roth Sinclair. And then on Saturday, if you want to watch the finals 
11 a.m. Eastern is the women's final on TESN on usacurl.org, and then that'll be followed at 3 p.m. Eastern on February 16th uh, there at usacurl.org. So make sure you tune in there. Uh, Jonathan, for the next Nationals, we will move across the pond to your island, uh, but a little bit north from where you are. The Scottish Curling National Championships get underway February 10th, and they also run through February 16th. Suddenly, we have kind of a deep field in the men's tournament, don't we? Yeah, I, I mean, the top three, they're, they're so basically their equivalent of the high-performance teams um, are all top 20 teams right now. And Moet's number six in the world. Patterson's, Patterson's number nine. Um, so two teams in the top 10. Uh, so any, you know, any three of those teams uh, could kind of win in any kind of situation. After that, there's actually, I'd say, a fair bit of separation. There's a really good team in Callum Kinnear, a good junior team. Um, and they've got a lot of training. They, they don't really play much on the, the adult tour. So I haven't been able to rack up the order of merit points, but um, they were kind of right there nip and tuck with, with Ross white this year on the junior side. So that they'll be a dangerous junior team. But again, I think that um, in men's play, there's always a bit of separation in terms of the, the strategy and the, the, the kind of mental side of it. So I, I, I don't want to say I discount junior teams, but I do think that um, the adult teams have a bit of an edge when it comes to a junior adult matchup, especially in kind of a high pressure situation, like a national championship, but uh, they're pretty good. And then the kind of interesting one way down at, and this is why I discount order of merit points a fair bit down at 389th in the world is Ewan McDonald. Who's won the, the world championship several times. So <laughs> he's got more rings than the rest of the field combined <laughs> when it comes to world championships. So uh, to say he's got no chance, you're, you're you know crazy. I think it's a case of he's not at a stage in his curling career where he wants to go out on tour and travel around and rack up points, but I'm sure he's going to show up and uh, be dangerous for sure. Yeah, you've got a three-time Scottish champion sitting at 389th on the order of merit. And like you said, it kind of, that a lot of that is because he's you know, not at a point in his life where he's willing to fly across the world and rack up order of merit points, but he's he's still going to have an impact on this tournament at some point, I'd imagine. And it's it's interesting we came into this season thinking that Bruce Mowat was the guy in Scotland. And then Ross Patterson kind of came through. We, we, I think we kind of viewed him as the third team in Scotland coming into this year. But now they have a Grand Slam of curling victory under their belt. And not only did they win a Grand Slam event in the final, they beat Bruce Mowat. So they've gone out on tour. They've done very well. They qualified at the Master at the GSOC Masters. They went to the semifinal at that tournament in Red Deer. Uh, they finished second in Penticton. Uh, what's interesting about that tournament in Penticton is they lost in the final to the third Scottish team uh, on our list, which is Glenn Muirhead's team. Uh, this team has Kyle Smith at third. He was the skip of Team GB at the Olympics last year. So this team has also done very well. As we said, we they beat, um, beat Patterson in Penticton. Um, they qualified in Red Deer. They qualified at the T, uh, tier, tour, tier 2 event at the Tour Challenge. 
And they've got a win over Nicholas Adine this year and a win over Kevin Cooey. So three very solid, very good Scottish teams. Uh, they've also, we also have a fourth team in here, Robin Brydone's team. He recently aged out of juniors. He had been playing with Ross White, who's not going to be at this tournament because he will also be at World Juniors. Uh, this team has done well at kind of those lower tier uh, European events, but he's also got a win over Ross Patterson at the event there in, in Perth in Scotland. So these top four teams in Scotland, they've all played each other and they've all kind of beat each other. So really anything could happen there, right? Yeah, I think anything could happen for sure. And uh, yeah, I, I it's hard to pick that field, right? I, I wouldn't be uh, surprised if uh, any of the top I would basically say that the three performance teams plus I, I would actually say Ewan McDonald. I, I kind of I, I always have to give the nod to the veterans in these kinds of events. I think Robin Brydon's good team. They're a young team, but again, uh, they don't quite have the seasoning yet. But all the players on that team could certainly be you know top twenty team uh, in the next year or two, just given how quickly uh, some of the Scottish men's teams have shot up the rankings lately. And really, I think any of those three, those three Team GB teams, Muirhead, Patterson, or Mallet, I think any of those three is would be a threat at Worlds. Yeah, I think, yeah, and you know, like Scotland doesn't have the best track record at, at World Championships, right? Like they, they do, they certainly have kind of won their fair share of World Championships, done a little bit better than the US, but it's not like they always go into being favorites every year. I think that certainly, certainly if Mowat or Patterson kind of end up coming out, I think they'd be like legit co-favorites with Adine and whoever comes out of Canada for the, for the gold medal spot. So, um, you know, it's, it'll be kind of, I actually think this, this year's worlds will be a kind of really interesting one. It's one, one of the effects of the world effectively catching up to Canada kind of on the cash spiel circuit and getting into the slams a lot and winning slams is that that actually is a good sign that the world is also going to be um, a lot more interesting these days, right? Like historically you could almost pencil Canada into the final game. And it was kind of whether or not they'd win. I don't think a Canadian team can, can kind of go to the world championship anymore thinking that like it's going to be a grind for, for a Canadian team, even to just make playoffs these days. Mm-hmm. And the winner on the men's side in Scotland will be looking for the first world championship gold for Scotland since 2009 when when Murdoch won. So looking for first gold in 10 years. And I think whoever comes out of Scotland, is if it's one of those top three teams that we talked about, that they'll definitely be a threat. On the women's side, is anyone going to challenge Eve Muirhead at all in this tournament? I, Sophie Jackson might, but I don't think they're there yet is to be honest and the other teams no (laughs) short answer is no way um so you know it's it's i think earlier in the season to be honest up through euros team mirror had looked quite shaky it was a new lineup eve was coming back from her injury uh was a bit worried to be honest (laughs) um but you know really since december they've righted the ship and they've looked like the old kind of Team the team Muirhead of old, so I, I have a hard time seeing anyone even kind of laying a, laying a glove on them. So, 
uh, it should be should be a pretty straightforward win for them, I'd say. Yep, and it's a four-team field. Uh, of course, Eve Muirhead, Sophie Jackson's team, they are just coming off of a two-and-four showing at the Yonkaping Curling World Cup event. You have Maggie Wilson, who went three and five in this event um, last year. Earlier this year, they won the Latvia Challenger event, which is, again, one of those kind of tier two European tournaments that we talked about before. And then rounding out the field, Rebecca Morrison, who went two and six in this event last year. And I believe I believe last year there were five teams. I believe there were five teams in this, and they did the same thing that they're going to do this year, which is kind of a double round robin. So, again, I think it's going to be – I'd be surprised if you've lost a game, to be honest. Yeah, I can't. I yeah, I'd be surprised if I lost the game too. I agree. That tournament is the only one that I really don't have a definitive idea on if it's going to be available online. I believe it is, and I believe it will be available on the Scottish Curling Facebook page. Uh, they did the same thing last year with the finals, and they also they also broadcasted the junior finals on their Facebook page. So look for that. Um, at the very least, I imagine the finals will be available And the finals. If you're in Eastern standard time, the finals will be February 16th at 6 AM for the women and 11 AM for the men staying in Europe, maybe one of the deeper tournaments outside of Canada is the Swiss, uh, nationals on both the men's and women's side on the men's side. It's, Kind of a two-horse race between Peter de Cruz and Yannick Schwaller. Uh, below that, there's a few teams that, you know, as we kind of talked about on the men's side in the U.S. Once you get past those, once you get past those top two, there's going to be a lot of coin flips. Um, but at the top, you have de Cruz and Schwaller coming into this year. There was probably a lot of expectations for the de Cruz team as they added Sven Sven Michel throwing third, but that team seems to kind of still be gelling. They went to the ECCs uh, and they didn't qualify, didn't make the playoffs there at Euros. Um, you know, kind of just an average record on tour. And on top of all that, they've lost to Schwaller at a couple of events. They lost to him um, in the the Swiss Cup that they do there for just uh, Swiss teams. And the winner of that uh, tournament got to go represent Switzerland at the Curling World Cup event in Sweden. They also lost to Schwaller at a GSOC event. So Schwaller, even though he comes into this as kind of the number two Swiss team, you know, he's got some wins under his belt against a Cruz. Um, he's also been kind of average uh, at GSOC. But to be honest, I kind of tend to think that he might win this event and that we might see Peter DeGruz uh, shut out of Worlds this year. Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Schwaller won. Yeah, it could uh, it could go either way. Um, after that, I mean, you st- the, the only other team that I really know is is Mark Fister, who looks like they've slipped a little bit in the world rankings lately, but they, he was always kind of a strong Swiss skip too. He's got world experience as well. So, And Fister's the defending champion. He's got uh, kind of a new team this year. I think that's why you're seeing he's actually, if you look at order of merit, he's the fifth ranked team uh, in this Swiss national championship. Uh, Schwaller, the 
2014 World Junior Gold Medalist is second. He's number 16 in the order of merit. Uh, just below him is Jan Hess, who just recently aged out of juniors. He represented Switzerland at World Juniors in 2017 and 2018. Uh, he's got a win against Stefan Wallstad this year, but that it's a new men's team that's 44th in the order of merit. Uh, just below him is Lucien Lautenbach, who has done well at those tier two uh, European events. Then you get to Mark Fister. New team for him this year. Looks like they're still kind of coming together, but he is the defending champion at this event. Uh, and they went six and six at Worlds last year. Um, Andrin Schneider is a team that's in the top 100. So you have six Swiss teams in the top 100. Uh, Simone Gimpiller uh, actually skips a team out of the lead position. I believe he played with Mark Fister. Um, and then rounding out this field is Timo Daniel. So another thing I noticed about the Swiss teams, Jonathan, is not a whole lot of them. I think Yannick Schwaller is the only like main Swiss team who both skips and throws fourth rocks, it seems like. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, I see it a lot in Europe. There's a lot more of these, you know, unorthodox lineups and not even just the kind of classic Furby four lineup where the vice skips and the, the fourth, uh, you know, throws last stones. So yeah, it, it's a, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think there are cases to be made for doing that. Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, the fur before being the kind of classic example of that working, but sometimes I think it, I, I've seen some lineups where it's just so unorthodox that like the person throwing four stones isn't even in the house as either vice or skip. And, uh, it, it almost seems like maybe it's kind of, everyone wants to give someone a bit of a role in the team and that, that sometimes can make things kind of pretty complicated. You don't have a clear pecking order and that can throw the team dynamics off a bit. So I'm not super sold on some of the versions, but the, the Benoit Schwartz team or uh, Peter de Cruz team or however you want to call it, they, uh, they're kind of, you know, they seem to make it work pretty well. So I guess it's whatever works for you. And they've, they actually added another skip, uh, to their team throwing third in Sven Michel. Uh, de Cruz is a two time Swiss champ. Sven is a two time Swiss champ. Uh, and they've come together. They're clearly they're clearly playing the long game, and their goal is clearly the Olympics, right? So whether or not they succeed in this tournament, you imagine that they're staying together, and their their goal is a much more is much longer term than than just this season. Yeah, I, I think it's, this is definitely for kind of all the teams out there a feel it out season, right? Let's kind of get our lineup out there, see what works, see what doesn't work. If we got to drop a player. I would actually expect a fair bit of free agency this off season, just based on teams that don't necessarily work or whatever. So I think there'll be a, a there'll be a fair bit of movement around this off season. But the DeCruz team was built basically to win a gold medal, so they're definitely playing a four year game here. And you see the same thing on the women's side. Uh, Silvana Tiranzoni, she's throwing third. Throwing fourth is a former skip, Alina Pats. Tiranzoni has won this event three times. Pats has won it twice. And in fact, she's even won a Worlds. Uh, this team finished second at the European Championships this year. They finished second at the Canadian Open. They made a semifinal at the National. You know, this team has been red hot, but there are four teams on the women's side in Switzerland in the top 25 in order of merit, including another former world champ who's actually 
fourth out of those four teams, Binia Felcher. Uh, she's got, I believe, a mostly new team this year. Uh, they are the defending champion. Team Stern, which is a younger team, um, has really kind of emerged this year. Uh, Elena Stern throwing third with Briar Herleman throwing fourth rocks. Uh, they actually won the tier two at the tour challenge at the GSOC. So they've got some good wins. Uh, the Hegner team has gone to some, some big events. Um, they actually beat Jennifer Jones twice at the China open earlier in the season. So it's a very, very deep field, uh, on the women's side, uh, at the Swiss national championships. Yeah, I mean, they've got four of the top 25 teams in the world playing in this event. So, uh, you know, and Irene Shorey is no slouch either. So, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a deep, deep field. Yeah. Any of those eight teams is capable of beating each other. I think the, the favorite's probably the Tiranzoni team. That's a team that clearly was built um, to go after an Olympic gold medal. But I think there's, you know, there's probably five teams that, at the at the end of the week, if any of them won, you wouldn't be that shocked by. No, yeah, it, it's you know, again, <laughs> not to harp on the curling World Cup, but th- this kind of points to the madness of not having a Swiss women's team in the curling World Cup, right? It's like I don't, I don't understand uh, why that uh, decision was made. Hopefully, they'll fix that for next year. So many World Championships um, in in this field. Yeah, again, it's it's kind of ridiculous that that they were left out of out of that event is is switzerland kind of the deepest country in europe they may not they may not be the best but are they are they definitely the deepest oh yeah i'd say well yes i think the the one yeah i'd say in terms of deep countries yes and i think it's because they do a bit more of this team play down model i mean i think actually sweden also has a pretty good curling culture. They certainly have like 20 plus ranks uh, because they basically pick their hand, pick their national teams in Sweden. I think that kind of discourages kind of multiple elite teams from forming up. So I kind of, you know, I'd say that's, that certainly the Swiss have the deepest national championships for sure in Europe. And that kind of speaks, I think to having a bit more of an open play down process too, right? That I think the more, the more handpicked you get, the more that perhaps discourages other teams from kind of stepping up and taking a run at things. So uh, the Swiss are probably closest in style to the Canadian approach in Europe. So is it, yeah, is, I was about to say, is it kind of rare that they aren't handpicking their teams, that they aren't, you know, fully funding only a select number of them, but yet they still produce results on the world level? Uh, I mean, I think that I think a they have an old enough curling culture, enough rinks and enough resources to make it work. Um, so that's the, that's the kind of other side of it, right? You know, other countries, you know, even the na- the national teams are kind of just scraping to to even keep their four their kind of top four together, right? So part of that's just a function of of depth of having a long history, whereas like a lot of other European countries may not have that ability. But I do think if you, if you compare the Swiss model to say the Swedish model, um, the Swiss model, uh, I think works kind of pretty well in terms of generating multiple teams, uh, that can go out on tour post results. And then you come into a week like this and you're actually not even all that worried if Irene Shorey, 
you know, who's ranked 55th in the world, they could certainly still win this event and could go to worlds and do damage for sure. So you're not, you're not uh, stuck worrying about, you know, one game upset and having to write weird rules about order of merit to, to keep kind of the upset teams from, from not, uh, not going. All right. Well, you will be able to watch all of the Swiss curling championships. They're broadcasting all week on YouTube. Uh, that tournament runs February 9th through 17th um, at the Swiss curling association, YouTube channel. Um, that's six hours ahead of Eastern standard time. So a lot of good lunchtime curling throughout the week. Uh, some of the better games that you'll be able to see, cause they, they've actually released their, their entire schedule um, at noon Eastern on February 20th, it's February 10th. You get uh, Schwaller and Hess on the men's side uh, at 1 PM on February 12th. You get uh, Tiranzoni and Hegner, uh, and at 8 a.m. Eastern, all those times are Eastern Standard Time, uh, 8 a.m. Eastern on February 13th, Felcher and Stern. They do this weird final series, so the eight teams will play a round robin. The top three will then play another round robin amongst themselves. If a team goes 9-0, and they win the tournament, and there's no championship games. If a team does not go 9-0, and then... After the second little mini round robin, the number two team plays the number one team and the number two team has to win twice. So that'll happen February 15th and 16th, um, the final series, uh, 6 a.m. and 1 p.m. on February 15th and 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on February 16th. And those if necessary games to determine the Swiss champion are at 11 a.m. Eastern, February 16th, and 4 a.m. Eastern on February 17th. So also kind of an interesting uh, way that they determine their champion. Yeah, actually, it's not that dissimilar from the English uh, men's championship either. And uh, I I think TV would never like that. But one of the advantages of not having a TV contract is you can actually draw up perhaps fairer play down process rules. And I think the, the logic is if your team's gone undefeated, they clearly are the champions. So would it be fair to have a team on say two losses, play the final and then, you know, win in a one game situation. Uh, I think the thinking there is kind of no. So that's why that rules in there. And then the, the kind of challenge process kind of recognizes the, the benefits of the, and kind of recognizes the record in the round robin, if you will, as establishing something. So I think there's good justification for those rules. No, it's a great format, but as you said, TSN would would hate it if Canada went to that format. Yeah, of course. No, in Canada, because the TV drives things, you do need the the kind of championship game and the playoffs. You got to have the playoff games because TV loves an upset. So uh, I mean, I think with with Canada, it's not as big a deal because even if a t- you know even if the fourth place team wins, they're still going to be you know a medal favorite going to Worlds. So we got one last championship to talk about, Jonathan, and we're going all the way to Japan. The Japanese national championships for the men and women will take place February twelfth through seventeenth. The women's side is very interesting. The men's side, we kind of have a favorite uh, looking at the men's side coming into this season. Things were very interesting. Uh, Yasuke Morizumi, his team 
you know, kind of ruled the roost in Japan. You know, they represented them at the Olympics, but that team broke up just prior to the season. In fact, I think they had already won the right to represent Japan at the PACCs when they broke up. And then I believe the Japanese Curling Association had to have almost like an emergency play down to determine Mm. their PACC representative. But the Morizumi team broke up just prior to the season because uh, their second uh, Tetsuro Shimizu uh, went to play for Team Abe and their alternate Kosuke Hirata went to play uh, throw fourth stones for Shingo Usui. Because those two players left, the rest of the team decided not to play together. Now, later on in the season, um, the third from that team kind of went off and started his own team. And then uh, the lead, Kosuke Morizumi, who I believe is Yusuke Morizumi's brother, uh, went and played uh, third for uh, Team Kanda, who they're also in this event. So starting this season, it seemed wide open um, on the men's side. However, we have seen Team Abe, which is now Team Yuta Matsumura, kind of emerge as the best team in the country. Um, They started a team as Team Abe. Um, Their skip uh, at the beginning of the season uh, at the Hokkaido Bank Championship was Shinya Abe, who's kind of run this team for a while. Um, They were second at the last two Japanese championships. Uh, In fact, they've come in second uh, three of the last four. So they've been, you know, just on the cusp of being a world championship caliber team. They add Tetsuro Shimizu from the Morizumi team. Um, After that Hokkaido Bank Championship where they didn't fare very well, they kind of shuffled their lineup. Abe moved to lead. Yuta Matsumura moved to fourth and he's calling the games. Tetsuro Shimizu is now the third. And since then, um, they've been dynamite. Um, You look at what they've done on tour. Uh, They won at Oakville, they won at Abbotsford, then they won the PACCs. Um, So that team has kind of emerged as the best team in Japan, whereas, you know, it seemed like it was going to be wide open coming into this season. Just below then, uh, we have Team Iwe, who you've probably heard us talk about a lot before on this podcast. Uh, They've got a junior curler on the team named Go Aoki, who wound up throwing fourth stones at Worlds last year. Uh, This team, Team Iwe, they are your defending champion. Uh, They beat the then-named Team Abe in the final. Um, Then they went 3-9 and at Worlds with Go Aoki uh, throwing fourth stones this season, they've been kind of up and down. They do have a win over uh, Yuta Matsumura this year. They have a win over uh, Kim Soo-yuk from Korea. They have a win over Joel Retornez. Um, they won that Hokkaido Bank cl- uh, Classic at the beginning of the season, but then, since then um, haven't been great. Uh, they went 0-6 in the first leg of the Curling World Cup. They went 1-5 uh, at the recently completed, completed uh, Yonka Ping Curling World Cup, but Outside of tournaments in Japan, they haven't been great, but you know this tournament is in Japan, and they're playing teams that they're familiar with that they've done well against um, both last season and this season. So that part makes it pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting. I mean, I don't. I, the, the only player I know well is Goyoki, who's a really good player, very good technical thrower, great, great shooter, fantastic sweeper. Um, so, and certainly one to watch uh, coming up. 
but I agree, you're right. I think it's the it's the Matsumura team is probably the favorite, and uh, Iwa is probably kind of there with the possibility of an upset. And to be honest, after that, my knowledge of Japanese curling peters out. So <laughs> I'll have to take your word for it. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Iwe team's been another one of those teams that's kind of juggled their lineup. Aoki was throwing fourth at the beginning of the year um, at the Hokkaido Bank Championship. I believe he was throwing. I believe he was lead throwing the first two rocks at um, at the Karazawa tournament where they um, played well, made the semifinal, and then lost the third place game to John Schuster. But uh, they've been pretty solid. After them, it kind of drops off. There's the team Kanda with uh, Junpei Kanda. Uh, at fourth and uh, Kasuke Murazumi throwing third, you know, that's a solid team. Um, just below them is Matsumura's brother, Hayato Matsumura. Um, other than, you know, that's probably the top four uh, in this tournament. And then after that, it's kind of uh, coin tosses. Um, there's a team that is a uh, team Morita that's from Kyoto. Uh, the interesting thing about them is, so all these teams in Japan, um, the way that their team nomenclature work is they kind of pick their names. Um, sometimes it's a sponsor. Sometimes it's a name they just pick, uh, but they don't really go by just who the skip is. Uh, so the interesting thing about the team Marita uh, team to me is they go by rodeo skip with an exclamation point at the end, which is kind of cool. <laughs> rodeo skip. All so right. The fact, yeah. The fact that their team rodeo skip with an exclamation point, um, no, I'll I'll kind of be rooting for them too because uh, because that's pretty cool. But I I like that actually. I I think I know I know in the U.S. certainly in kind of especially arena club culture, kind of giving your team um, a goofy name and not a t- not associating with the skip's name is kind of caught on. And uh, I actually think there's a case for kind of a bit more of that. I'm not you know. I think it's a bit old school to say the team is just the skip, right? In this day and age, um, I think more curling fans are a lot more knowledgeable and recognize how important front ends are. And uh, I kind of like this idea of giving teams Mm -hmm. team names that aren't like the skips name. So I applaud that. It's especially big out there, I think, because they shuffle their lineup so much. Like we talked about with the Matsumura team and the Iwe team, um, the Iwe team is Team Sapporo International University. I think that's because that's where they're from. And then uh, Yuta Matsumura's team, their team, Kansadol, I believe that their sponsor is, that's kind of associated with a, a soccer team that's in Sapporo. So that's kind of cool. They kind of fall under the same um, umbrella, I guess, as as that soccer team. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. It makes it a little uh, difficult when you're looking at uh, broadcast schedules, trying to figure out what teams are playing at what time when you're not just completely familiar with the team names. But yeah, I'm with you. I think it's, I think that's a lot cooler than just, uh, team Havercroft. Uh, looking at the women's side of the Japanese championships, it's kind of gone the exact opposite of the men at the beginning of the season. It looked like we had like one established team that was going to, kind of sweep through the season in Team Satsuki Fujisawa, but we've seen other teams kind of prove themselves out on tour. And now, similar to Switzerland, you have four teams in the top 50. By the way, they've all won this tournament in the last four years. 
you have Team Fujisawa. They were the Olympic representative in 2018 where they won bronze. Uh, their last win in this tournament was 2016. They then went on to win silver at the Worlds. The Yoshimura team, it's kind of a new team, kind of not. This is basically the former Agasawara team. Uh, she retired, took a step back from curling. Everyone else pretty much moved up one position, and they've really established themselves on tour this year. Look at the Yoshimura team. They're all the way up to 13th in the order of merit. They won this tournament in 2015 with Agasawara. They went to the 2014 Olympics with her. Uh, this year, they won the Hokkaido, uh, the Hokkaido tournament to qualify for this event. They finished second at the Karazawa tournament, losing to Sidorova. They've been to GSOC events. They uh, went one and three at the national um, they finished second to Team Stern at that Tier 2 event at the Tour Championship. Uh, they've also done well uh, at uh, European tournaments. And on tour, they've got wins over Robertson Jones, Silvernagel, and, Fle and uh, Tracy Fleury. So they are right there with the Fujisawa team. Just below that, you have uh, what is now Team Nakajima. Like some of those teams we talked about on the men's side, um, They've kind of shuffled their lineup a bit. They started out as Team uh, Chiaki Matsumura. Uh, she throws third on this team. Uh, Kitazawa throws fourth on this team. And Nakajima, who they added to this team at the beginning of the season, is now throwing second. Uh, and she is the skip. They won this uh, event with, as uh, Team Chiaki Matsumura in 2017. Um, they were second at the Hokkaido Bank Classic. They've been out on tour in Canada. They went three and three at the Autumn Gold Classic, uh, three and three at the Canadiens. They made the semifinals in Red Deer. Uh, their big win this year, they beat uh, Chelsea Carey at the Canadiens uh, tournament. Then, also in the top 50, and the fourth ranked team looking at order of merit is the defending champions, uh, Tori Kawana's team. Uh, they beat Team Ogasawara in the final last year. They wound up going 5-7 and seven at Worlds. Uh, they represented Japan recently at the Curling World Cup event in Yonkaping, where they went 2-4. and four. Uh, This is a solid young team. They've been out on tour as well. They made the quarterfinals at the Can-Ad Inns. Uh, they have wins over uh, Kelsey Rock and Ali Flaxey on tour. So four solid teams in what is suddenly a uh, kind of a deep field on the women's side in Japan. Yeah, not not all that dissimilar from Switzerland, actually. So that's good to see, too. Yeah, I, I, it's very hard to pick between them, I'd say. Uh, yeah, and I think any of those four uh, could wind up winning. And for, for any of those four, it would be uh, their second win in five years. Uh, and I think any of them would, would acquit themselves well uh, at Worlds. Fujisawa is probably the favorite just because they're the more established team. But um, as we've said, uh, anything could happen, especially when you have four teams that have that all have previ previous success at this tournament. So four championships um, all around the world coming up at around the same time. You can even watch uh, you can even watch this Japanese tournament on YouTube if you search curling Japan. Uh, you'll be able to find them. In fact, they're showing every single draw uh, on YouTube. Just remember, it is 14 hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time. 
uh, some of the more interesting matchups you have uh, on February 11th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern, Yuta Matsumura against Junpei Kanda's team. Uh, at 10.20 p.m. on February 11th, Fujisawa and Nakajima. Some other good games throughout the week at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on February 12th. You have Iwe against Shikano. Uh, 6.30 p.m. Eastern on the 13th, the Battle of the Brothers Matsumura between Yuta and Hayato Matsumura. So good curling all week. Uh, their finals will be at midnight Eastern, the night of February 16th slash morning of February 17th. Um, and the women's final will be at 3.50 a.m. Eastern on February 17th. Uh, kind of a great weekend of curling there. The weekend of the 16th, Jonathan, you've got the four championships that we have talked about tonight. And then that same day, you get the Scotty's Tournament of Hearts starting and the uh, World Juniors. And in fact, you look at the schedule, uh, February 16th, 17th, you could watch uh, championship curling from around the world for 24 consecutive hours uh, if you were that insane. And you probably are insane enough to do that. Um, I've actually got a family event, so I will be unable to watch curling for 24 consecutive hours. (laughs) (laughs) Where are your priorities, Ryan? I know. I I just have messed up priorities. So uh, thank you so much for for joining us uh, and enjoy all the curling from around the world. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. If you want to get a hold of us, Uh, we love hearing from you on Twitter. You can also email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram at rocksacrossthepond. Um, Please, uh, if you haven't already, uh, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. The best thing that you can do is leave a review to help people find this podcast or to tell a friend if you uh, enjoyed listening to us. Jonathan, do you have anything else before we get out of here? Uh, I think, oh, I'll tell you what I'm doing this weekend, Ryan. I forgot to tell you. I am playing in the Haggis. Oh, no kidding. Are you going to win a <laughs> Haggis and send it to me so I can uh, square up? That, that I'm, a, I'm a man on a mission. That's all I'm going to say to win a haggis and send it to Virginia. So I read that Scottish haggis is actually banned in the United States and you can't actually send me a pure Scottish haggis because I guess they use sheep lung there and that um, that makes it illegal to, to ship to the U.S. Oh, all right. Well, we'll have to figure out another way to get you a haggis. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find a way. <laughs> All right. We'll have to find a haggis mule to, to take it <laughs> on the plane or something. Kind of like how you have to find cooling, uh, curling equipment mules. Exactly. Exactly. Shh. All right. Maybe you can trade, uh, maybe you can trade a haggis for some hardline broom heads. Yeah, exactly. It's a good plan. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you everyone and enjoy a, a world full of curling for the next couple of weeks. No, no.